is The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen. I'm Leslie Hankson. And I'm Gabriel Rossman. Our guest is Charlie Eaton from the University of California, Merced. Charlie is an expert on higher education finance, and his uh, recent publications include The Organizational Ecology of College Affordability, Research Activity, State Grant Aid Policies, and Student Debt in U.S. Public Universities in Socius. Today, finance and higher education. Our discussion was recorded on November 18th, 2019. We are here with Charlie Eaton. Welcome, Charlie. Hey. And we are talking about his work on finance and higher education. Charlie, do you want to start off just by introducing yourself? Sure. I'm an assistant professor of sociology at a UC Merced, and I do my research is on the rising wealth and power of financiers in many domains. And my main current project is about the rising power and wealth of financiers in U.S. higher education and how uh, growing inequalities in higher education have been related to what we call financialization. And it tells you're working on a book, you said, or is it something you want to share with yeah. us or keep under wraps? Yeah, so my main project right now is a book entitled Bankers in the Ivory Tower that I've got under contract with the University of Chicago Press. And, you know, it's it starts with the deregulation of financial markets in mm-hmm. the U.S. at the beginning of the 1980s and tracks how changes in U.S. higher education and rising inequalities in higher education are part of the same process as the rising wealth and power of financiers in the broader U.S. economy and society. Hmm. And I I sort of track how you've gotten three increasingly unequal organizational strata in U.S. higher education. At the top, you've got elite private schools, Mm -hmm. say the top 20 most selective private liberal arts colleges and universities from Amherst to Harvard and Princeton and Yale and so forth, where you through the growth of very large college endowments, you've developed uh, huge resource surpluses, but they still enroll the same tiny number of students, mainly from wealthy backgrounds uh, that they did in the 1970s. And so you've got literally at places like Princeton, they're spending $80,000 per student on their instructional side of their operation. While at the bottom, you've had a lot of working class and especially African-American students pushed into for-profit colleges. And this has also been related to finance and that for-profit colleges were expanded through the growth of federal student loan programs since the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And less understood is that for-profit colleges were expanded through essentially a takeover in the sector by private equity investors who then created a bunch of large publicly traded corporations. And then in the middle, you've got public institutions that I argue have been squeezed by the diversion of resources to the top through tax subsidies for endowments and for charitable donations, and the diversion of resources to the bottom through expenditures on Pell Grants and subsidies for student loans to for-profit students. Let's start with a little bit of background, maybe for people who aren't acquainted with the history of how higher ed has changed. So like 40 years ago, the public system was funded by state subsidies or government subsidies, and they maintained a low sticker price. And then 
over time, they switched to sort of a higher sticker price model and people were given the option to borrow the money or win the money through aid. And so that's sort of like the, the time that you're, you're looking at, right? So can you just tell us a little bit about like how we got from the 1970s to today and what's changed over these decades, just in general, in higher ed? Yeah, sure. In the 1960s and 70s, you know, enrollments in U.S. higher education quadrupled, and that was paid for almost entirely by uh, tax-funded expenditures by the federal government and by state governments. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that really, that expansion peaked in 1979, and uh, the sort of the pivot to student loan financed higher education and these inequalities is people kind of miss the pivot because it sort of happened in slow motion. So Pell Grants reached their largest generosity per student in 1979. And then you had a kind of lost decade in the 1980s where two things happened. One is that the Reagan administration put the brakes on any expansion of funding for higher education. And then the other thing that happened is you had a change in the economy as you had the deindustrialization of the U.S. economy and the breaking of unions. And a lot more people um, started going to college as what they saw as the only viable path to uh, economic prosperity. And this mm -hmm. is kind of nicely theorized in Tressie McMillan Cotton's book, Lower Ed, mm -hmm. that you, you get this change in the economy that's very important to the change in higher education, where mm -hmm. 1970s, you could go work in a factory and you could have prosperity. 1980s, you get many more people trying to go to college because the blue collar path to prosperity is perceived as being gone. And mm. that means the resources that you did have in the 1980s are spread increasingly thin. Mm -hmm. And so finally, at the end of the 1980s, beginning of the 1990s, universities, which had opposed expanding student loans um, at the end of the 70s, said, we're not going to get more state funding or as much as we need. And they supported a proposal by a set of uh, commercial banks at the beginning of the 1990s to, to radically expand the federal student loan program, mm -hmm. which provided new resources for universities to enroll students, but it also dumped these new debt burdens on students. And so the, the pivot to tuition financed higher education expansion really occurs from the mid 1990s onward. Hmm. It was seen as, uh, first of all, it, it was seen in some ways as a, a more just system, though, right? Some argued that by shifting more costs to the people who go to college, and college students tend to earn more, college graduates tend to earn more than those who don't graduate college, it was seen as maybe deinstitutionalizing, like a distributionally regressive policy in some senses, wasn't it? I remember those types of arguments circulating in the 1990s. Oh, you see, you still see that argument when people talk about free college. Yeah. The, the argument being that college graduates are upper income. Yeah, that's been mostly a post hoc argument. Mm -hmm. That's an argument that people have really made after the fact. If you go back and you read the congressional hearing minutes in the late 70s, mm. you know, the colleges and the student associations are both saying, you know, we don't think student loans is the way to do this. We think an expansion of grant aid is the way to do this. Right. And it's really not that somebody makes an argument that it's more economically just to make the beneficiaries of higher education pay. It's that they got to find the resources somewhere. 
and this sort of justification that it's it's more socially equitable to make the people who benefit from higher education pay happens after the fact. And then it also ends up being inaccurate because, you know, there is a subset of people who graduate from college debt-free in the U.S. and they're called rich people. So if you look at the top 20, if you look at the top 20 schools that are most selective in their admissions, they're all private institutions. The students in their first year, only about 15 to 20% of students have any student debt at all. And that's because their students are very wealthy and they've got all this endowment wealth that for the very, very small number of low-income students they enroll, they're able to provide financial aid. And that was kind of illustrated recently by Raj Chetty, a Harvard economist study, in which he showed that among these schools, they tend to enroll more students from the top 1% of the income spectrum than they do from the bottom 60% combined. Yeah. Yeah. It's, It's quite a finding. So it's interesting that you mentioned that because I I kind of feel as though at least, you know, with those highly selective, incredibly well-endowed institutions of higher education that, you know, over the past 10 to 15 years, there actually has been a real push to say, okay, we need to figure out ways to make, like, if possible, all of our students able to graduate without any student debt, right? We realize that, you know, one of the things that we're doing, particularly with those, uh, you know, those first generation students, you know, those low income students, is we're telling them, hey, look at all we have to offer to you. And then they graduate saddled with a lot of debt, which kind of undermines, you know, the, the sort of ability for their college degree to actually help them to attain a certain level of mobility, at least financial mobility. And so, I'm wondering, because, you know, what tends to happen is, you know, you know, if these people are doing it, then, you know, other people want to jump on the bandwagon. Do you think that there there might be some kind of effect uh, on the rest of higher ed, you know, based on what these, you know, I would say like even less than 20 or maybe like around 20 institutions are actually doing to try and ensure that as many students as possible graduate without debt or with very little debt. Yeah, no, there is a trend among the wealthiest institutions to provide debt-free paths to degrees for those students that they do enroll. Mm -hmm. The problem is, you know, there's a a witty column, I think it was a Frank Bruni column a few years ago, in which he joked that Stanford had announced that it had reached a new level of incredible selectiveness, and that it was now so selective that they actually did not admit any students at all. And, you know, what this gets at is that the way these schools compete with each other is to see who can reject the most students who apply to go there. Mm -hmm. So if you only enroll five or 600 new undergraduates every year, as is the case at Princeton, and you're only going to admit 15% of those from low-income backgrounds, then it's actually pretty cheap to provide a debt-free path to them, especially when your endowment is worth $25 billion. Mm -hmm. Um, So the kind of the other part of this that I think is really important is these very wealthy institutions. If, for example, you were to say, hey, we're going to tax endowments, and the only way you can get exempted from the endowment is both if you provide debt-free education for lower-income students, but you also have to enroll a certain number of students per endowment dollar. 
or alternatively, you could imagine all the elite schools getting together and saying, you know, we're not, we're going to stop competing in the, all the status rankings. We're stop, going to stop competing on who can reject the most students who apply here. That's not going to happen. <laughs> you had a really concrete form of that where Harvard recently got caught aggressively recruiting applications from African-American students who it didn't expect to admit in part, not to, not just to increase its overall selectivity rating, but also specifically as a way to defend themselves in the Asian lawsuit. That's just, if, if that is actual policy, then that's yeah. just sick. <laughs> yeah. See, the other part of this problem with the elite schools is, I mean, there's a disincentive to enroll more students because of the the rankings metrics and their emphasis on how selective you can be in your admissions. But the other problem these schools have is that really historically what they have been is guilds for rich people. And they have been guilds for rich people in in no sector more so than in finance. Um, This was Mm -hmm. documented nicely in Lauren Rivera's book with some ethnographies of how tight the recruitment is to top hedge funds and investment banks and private equity funds. Also in work by Megan Neely, she's got a great socioeconomic review paper um, entitled Fit to be King about the ties between elite schools and these banks. But, you know, the folks who sit on the boards of these universities, you know, I built a data set for this book in which we we track the, the members of the boards for the top 30 private universities. And what we find is that about 35% of board members come from high finance, much higher than any other part of the economy. And everybody on the board is really interested in making sure that their own their own kids and their own social uh, spectrums get in. So you st- they are very much in support of maintaining both the formal advantages for legacy students, as well as the informal uh, legacy advantages, such as you know admitting a certain number of students on lacrosse scholarships or other scholarships for elite sports that really only people from wealthy backgrounds play. Mm-hmm. We've had, uh, I don't know if you're a regular listener or not, and you don't need to admit it if you're not, but <laughs> we've had many conversations about the varsity blues scandal and yeah. pretty much every one of them I bring up that the real scandal isn't, you know, that some coaches got bribed, but that they have coaches for obscure preppy sports in the first place mm-hmm. yeah. as a way to practice affirmative action for the rich. Mm-hmm. So, you know, adding to sort of the studies that you nodded to, Charlie, like I can't recommend enough. I mean, it's kind of overly long, but Karen Ho's ethnography of Wall Street liquidated. And, you know, a good chunk of that, of at least the first part of the book talks about sort of the practices of, you know, the major banks, right, being able to like come onto these very, very specific campuses, right, where they come and they recruit and, you know, and they have this very, very specific recruiting practice of saying, we're the best, and you're the best, right. And, you know, sort of kind of tapping into, you know, this whole kind of mythology of the the talented, whatever, you know, not the talented 10th, of course, but the talented elite. We are at Harvard because we're smarter than everyone else in the world. I remember being at Princeton and having an undergrad tell me, well, yeah, I mean, the people here are the smartest people in the world. And I was like, you really believe that? Yeah, <laughs> like, we, we were their TAs. So we know yeah. what some of them were. But, <laughs> yeah. You know. yeah, I was like, you really believe that? That's so amazing to me. And so there's this like total like 
kind of like feedback loop of, you know, these financial institutions, you know, sort of recruiting heavily from these incredibly elite you know, institutions of higher education. And then, you know, once they make it in finance, then, you know, they stay connected to that network and then they get on the board and they help to totally reproduce the sort of cycle over and over and over again. No, totally. And the level of social closure in finance that operates through elite higher education is unparalleled in any other profession. There's plenty of inequality of multiple dimensions gender, racial, class, in who gets to become an elite surgeon, an elite lawyer, a corporate executive. But the level of social closure in finance is really unparalleled. I think Megan Neely cites a survey in which uh, you know, she, they have identified that among top hedge fund managers, 95% are white men. I looked at the top 400 wealthiest people in the US who are billionaires. And on, from the Forbes 400 list. And what you find there is among those folks who are from uh, hedge funds and private equity funds who make up a growing share of the list, between 60 and 70% have Ivy League degrees. Among those from the tech sector, which you might also think is a, a sector that is going to have high rates of degree holding from elite institutions. It's only 30 or 35% of tech billionaires who have Ivy League degrees. And it's this, as you said, it's this revolving door of social closure where these institutions, um, the, the financial organizations, use their ties to elite institutions to remain to maintain a social closure of people who look like who look like the top hedge fund managers, who look like the top private equity managers, and experience the same socialization in which they learn that they are the best and they're going to go work at the best financial firms. And, and you know, the one kind of piece that I, I think is important that I'm trying to add to this in the book is that finance also has a really strategic position in the economy where they can extract, especially since financial deregulation, they can extract large rents for anybody who gets the capital that they control. And so they've been able to both extract larger shares of wealth from the economy for themselves, but they've also been able to steer more of that to the elite educational institutions through which they reproduce themselves over time. So I have um, Acres and Chingos uh, open in front of me, and I'm looking at some of the figures and tables and whatnot. And one of the patterns you see, there's two big patterns you see. So one is that people with bachelor's degrees have similar levels of uh, debt as people who drop out of college, maybe 20% more, but same ballpark. So whether you finish your degree or you don't, you have about the same level of debt. But the unemployment rate for college dropouts is about twice what it is for college graduates. And it's basically the same as it is for people with just a high school diploma. So basically, you have an issue of people who drop out of college, they take on almost an entire education's worth of debt, but they don't have an education's worth of sheepskin effect mm -hmm. for their income attainment. And then the other pattern that you see in uh, Acres and Chingos is if you look at the default rates, they're way higher for people who started at a for-profit school than they are mm -hmm. for people who started at either a traditional nonprofit school or even or a uh, state school, you know. So, to what extent is our student loan problem, you know, mostly an issue 
of people who went to for-profit schools and or and these things are related dropped out without getting a degree yeah so i mean the problem with the arguments that economists have made about student loans in general is they're talking about market efficiency at a market level mm -hmm. and they're saying on average your income gain if you go to college is going to be larger than the cost of the student loans that you're going to take out the problem is that there's a really wide distribution and it's of those income gains relative to your debt and the other problem is that there's many other dimensions of inequality that are going to bear on whether or not you're going to be able to, to repay your debt. So, yeah. So, so just to clarify real fast, uh, just sure. so you, those, the things I mentioned are problems, but you're saying that even within the, you know, the good group, you know, the people who went to traditional schools and finished their degrees, there's enough variance that within that, you know, the group who did it, the traditional overall better way, yes. a lot of those pro people still have problems. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And where I was going to go first is, you know, there's a huge problem that we're learning more and more about, especially uh, through work by Fanaba Addo and by Jason Hooley about the racial wealth gap and racial discrimination in the job market and who is able to repay student loans. So mm -hmm. on average, African-American students who take out loans, even those who go to state schools or nonprofit schools, on average, after uh, 10 years, many of them still have substantial amounts of student debt left to repay, whereas white students on average have repaid most of their student debt by 10 years after they leave school. And it's not just a function of students getting pushed into for-profit colleges. You can see that also in my recent paper from Socius that was mentioned earlier on the organizational ecology of college affordability, that's a study all of public institutions. And we show that among lower income students, we did not have uh, data by race, unfortunately, but we did show that among lower income students in particular, you have catastrophically low levels of student loan repayment three years after leaving school, especially from lower resource public institutions. Um, you know, what we might call our regional public universities. So even at our public universities, even at our nonprofits, you have many, many students who uh, end up not repaying their debt. And even if we took a more, you know, a, an optimistic view, this issue of there being huge variance and huge risk is essentially what we're doing is we're, we're saying to our most vulnerable students going in, you need to take on the risk rather than society needs to take on the risk of whether or not you're mm. going to gain economically from your education or not. And if you graduate during a recession, that's a bummer, but that risk is the risk that you took on. If you are African-American and are discriminated against in the labor market and you're not able to get commensurate income gains from your uh, college education, that's a bummer. That's a risk that you took on. And even if not everybody ends up having a negative outcome from that risk, those risks are borne very broadly by students. Um, and I think that is why you see so much support, more support for student loan cancellation and for free college among the broader population and, you know, and among voters than you do among policy elites. So to take a, a very cynical and somewhat heretical interpretation, if we have an issue with people dropping out and or you know, not getting high economic returns to their degrees, does that imply that maybe we've expanded access a little too much, right? Because my understanding of the big picture trend is that matriculation rates are way up since, say, 1980, but graduation rates have hardly budged. 
Yeah, I'd push back on that yeah. in, in one way. Okay. Um, and that is particularly in the case of African-Americans. You have African-Americans who are graduating mm -hmm. from college with degrees and with student debt who are not able to repay those loans, mm -hmm. not because they didn't get a gain from the degree, but because they don't have the same economic cushion of accumulated family wealth that other students have to mm -hmm. help them repay student loans. And so you really are saying there, well, you know, if African-Americans are just, to, to, you could take that argument to say African-Americans are unlikely to be able to repay their student debt, even if they go to a decent school and get a decent degree. And so they shouldn't go to college because of labor market discrimination, which I don't think is an argument that anyone would want to make. So, so, but to take that out of it, let's say that we're talking about the marginal white student. Should the marginal white student not go to college? Yeah, so I, I would say on that question, I am somebody who is skeptical about the limits to which we can reduce inequality mm -hmm. via expanded higher education access. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, I think if you want to reduce inequality in the U.S., the most fundamental thing is you need to increase the bargaining power of workers and you need to expand a welfare state to provide people with social benefits, both so that they, they've got, you know, a minimum basic dignity, but also so that they're more, in a more powerful position in the labor market. You're not going to be able to do that for, by providing college for all. But I also don't think it's an either or, you know, until sure. we can get to a, a more generous welfare state or a stronger labor market position for workers, people are going to continue wanting to go to college and we shouldn't expose them to undue risks that create new inequalities through student debt. So it sounds like you wouldn't claw back money from, say, Pell Grants to you know, drop into the NLRB or EITC. But if you had an additional dollar, you'd probably put in NLRB or EITC before you'd put it into expanded Pell Grants. You know, I, that's a complicated question. And I think it's a question that sociologists don't think well enough about because we uh, tend to think about our different policy areas and silos. Mm -hmm. And we also don't tend yeah, to think fair. about policy in relationship to politics. Mm -hmm. So to me, if it's easier to put more dollars into Pell Grants and into free higher debt ed and debt cancellation politically than it would be to, for example, expand Social Security or Medicare for all, then mm -hmm. I'm all for it. It's, I think we, you know, we should be wary of a logic of scarcity mm -hmm. and a logic of only putting money into things that are the most equitable and instead think about where does politics let us put money in a redistributive way and which of those allocations will create favorable feedback effects politically for further expanding social benefits either in that area or in other areas. And that, that thinking reflects that my training, I'm an economic sociologist, my training is sort of in a Flicksteinian economic sociology school, but also uh, the sociology of the welfare state by Margaret Weir, who was one of my advisors. And she's kind of from the Theta Scotch Pole, Jacob Hacker, Paul Pearson world of thinking about the welfare state. So there are two things that, you know, that I would also like throw in there too, and in, in sort of like your policy toolkit. The first is, I think that the way in which we sort of push college uh, on high school students, like, you know, actually increasingly now kindergartners, right, and their parents that if your child doesn't go to college, then your child is a failure, right? Because there's absolutely no way that your child can become a success 
you know, can engage in meaningful work and can get paid a living wage if they don't go to college, right? And so then because of that, you know, you should be willing to take on the risk of, you know, of taking on a debt that you may not be able to pay back within 10 years. So that's number one, what I see as like the sort of extreme marketing of higher education, you know, within our within our private elementary and secondary schools. So that's number one. The second thing is, I mean, aside from thinking about the welfare state, I mean, how much leverage might we have in, you know, just going to private industry and just saying, look, you know what I mean? The days of, you know, of paying people less than a living wage, you know, especially given the amount of, you know, sort of corporate welfare that you get, you know, those days are over. And rather than being afraid that they're all going to move to to Mexico, you know, let's grow a bit of a backbone. Yeah, no, I'm I'm in agreement, you know, and I I think the proposals that we've seen recently from leading Democratic Party officials, for example, to create industry-wide collective bargaining for workers um, rather than the current um, employer-by-employer-based bargaining that we have is a move in that latter direction that you said, where we're we're creating a a framework for workers to have much stronger negotiating power. Tax reform is also a big deal, too. You know, one of the great insights of Thomas Piketty's book on capital back in 2014 was that, you know, you don't just tax rich people to have more money to spend on the welfare state. You do it to change their incentives, because if, for example, you have a 70% tax on capital gains, then companies don't have the same incentive to expropriate wages from workers in order to retain it as profits because they're not going to, they can only get to keep 30% of it. Mm -hmm. And so it changes the incentive structure and the balance of power and negotiations between workers and industry. But to kind of go to the first thing that you just said, Leslie, about telling kids from when they're in kindergarten that they got to go to college no matter what, you know, I'd go back to Tressie McMillan Cotton's book on this, in which she talks about the education gospel and how the education gospel, especially among African Americans, gets intensified in the 1980s as blue collar paths go away. And I think it's underappreciated. In fact, I was at an event with her recently in which she, she was saying that she wishes this point had gotten across better. It's underappreciated that there's a real risk in the education gospel that it can be exploited by people like for-profit colleges. Because if you do go to a for-profit college and you take on debt, odds are the outcome is going to be worse for you than not going to college at all. Mm-hmm. That's been really well established now in a, in a number of studies, including a, a Deming, David Deming paper with co-authors in which they did an audit study and they sent randomized resumes with for-profit college, non-profit college, and no college on the resumes to employers. And students were either as likely to get a callback or less likely to get a callback if they had a for-profit degree than if they had no degree at all. Mm -hmm. So it really, you know, I do think that this education gospel is is a dangerous thing, but it's a it's a tricky thing because in the absence of an expansion of the welfare state or an improvement in the lot of blue collar workers, the returns to a college degree are substantial on average. But I do think we need to really protect students from the risk of it not panning out because it doesn't pan out for everyone. You know, my perception as someone who teaches at a college that mainly serves Pell Grant recipients is that one of the big flaws is that 
Pell re requires you to go full time. And a lot of students lack the means to be a full-time student without taking on debt. You know, when I'm advising students, I wish they could just work and take one or two classes a semester in the evenings or on weekends, which we can completely accommodate. But part of the problem that they face is that they have to go all in on their education. Like they can't just do it in bits and pieces. And that's part of the problem to my mind of this high sticker price aid reliant type of package. If the sticker price is low and you can just, you know, buy a course here or there and take six, seven years to go through an undergraduate degree, I feel like it would mitigate a lot of the risk. Yeah, careful what you wish for. That's how people do community college. Like I have a lot of students who are, you know, in their mid to late 20s because they went through community college which in theory, under the California Master Plan for Education, you're just supposed to live at your parents' house and get it done in two years. And then you're a junior and a senior the same age as everybody else who came in as a freshman. Hmm. And there are some students who do that. But in practice, people take five, six, seven years yep. to go through community college because they're just doing one or two courses a term. And, and then they come in and they're in their late 20s. And there's a logic to getting people through as quickly as possible, because that way you can amortize the expense of the degree across more years in the labor force. You can, however, you know, like, so I'm working on a paper on student debt right now. And like the median student debt is about the size of an auto loan mm -hmm. and a modest car loan too. You know, the, the problems with it are number one, you can't discharge it as easily as you can discharge a, a regular debt. Like if you could just go bankrupt easy, and default and have it wiped from your credit record in seven years. Yeah, and that used to happen. And the reason we changed the law is because you have people going to medical school and then declaring bankruptcy. It only took a few years for all that medical debt to yeah, get so off it, their bankruptcy record. It would force lenders to be prudent in their lending and yeah. not uh, issue someone $100,000 in, in loan. Or we could lobotomize you when you go bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> right, you know. Yeah, though currently, current, currently there aren't really private lenders have very low market share. They only do about 10% of the lending in U.S. higher education, 90% of the lendings by the federal government, and is actually now because of a very positive reform by the Obama administration, are all direct loans by the federal government, which actually is yeah. part of why it's so much easier now to talk about debt cancellation or debt-free colleges, because you don't have a bunch of large commercial banks that have you know, a big stake in the system. But the, you know, the other way of thinking about this, that we should let students take longer, is that we should actually give students enough financial aid that they can be full-time students without economic hardship. And that's where, you know, my thinking goes is if we're going to support low-income students to go to college, college should both be tuition-free and there should be adequate financial aid to cover cost of living so that you can be a full-time student. And that would be at just like where you are, um, Joseph, at UC Merced, I think 60% of our students are Pell Grant recipients. It mm. would be a major game change for our students, many of whom work 20 or 30 hours a week while they're in school, if they could actually be full-time students. Maybe they work 10 hours a week, which is what most studies have found is about optimal for working while you're in college. Mm. But really, nobody should be working more than that. But it means providing a lot more financial aid to low-income students than just the cost of tuition. You'd have to design that carefully though, because otherwise you would attract marginal students who aren't necessarily, you know, completely committed to the degree, mm. but they know that there's, you know, this is a part, because I mean, you were talking earlier about, we don't get the welfare state that might be ideal. We get the welfare state that's politically feasible. 
So let's say for the sake of argument that UBI might be some ideal component of a welfare state, but it's also unfeasible because it seems like just giving people money for nothing. Whereas in part because of the education myth, it would be more feasible to have something like uh, more stipends for people going to school full time. Well, that means that if you basically are having poor luck on the labor market, there's a strong incentive to say, well, I'll just enroll in school. And, you know, in order to get the stipend, even if I flunk all my classes, and then you're going to have situations where, you know, uh, professors are being told like, well, if you don't pass me, even though I flunked the exam, then, you know, I'm going to be on the street, et cetera. I, I don't know. I just thinking you have to. Oh, we hear that. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Yeah, I do too, actually. There's that. Uh, yeah. I mean, that might work for one degree, but I mean, I've seen more than my fair share of people who are doing multiple degrees and just racking them up and for no apparent reason. And, and I'm, what I'm saying is that it would make it worse, right? We already see it with the current policy. And if we were to have uh, high stipends uh, targeted towards, you know, quote unquote, going to school full time, that you'd see a certain amount of reactivity to that where people would quote unquote, go to school full time, but in some sense, not really in order to, you know, gain access to that pool of resources. Yeah. So I, so I have a question about that, right? I mean, so yeah. I, like most schools have an application process, right? And so, you know, you need to, you need to get in. Uh, most schools are non-selective, aren't they? I think so. You mean non-selective? There's absolutely no level of selectivity at all. You just well, very low. You just apply, and they're like, "Okay, sure, fine." Just I mean, that's basically the case for for profits, and even most for like profits, I mean, a community yeah. college. It's like unless you got straight D's in high school, you can go to community college. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. The thing that I would say about this is that you know two things. One is that if you. Uh, <laughs> What you're describing, Gabriel, is a risk to society or a risk to taxpayers or the state that yes. if we provide adequate financial aid for low-income students to be in college, there is a risk that a larger number of students will enroll in college because they can't get commensurate income otherwise. That's right. I think there's actually reasons to think that that's not going to happen as at as large a scale as you suggest. Mm-hmm. But if that occurs... That risk is borne across society and is borne disproportionately by wealthier people who pay higher taxes. Mm-hmm. If you don't do that, then the risk of college is borne by the people who go to college. And in the mm-hmm. case of low-income folks, you have a disproportionate risk that's placed on low-income folks. In my view, if, if you're thinking in terms of for justice and equity, it's better for society to bear the risk of spending a little bit too much on financial aid for people who go to um, school too long or go to school and get degrees that aren't worthwhile than it is for low-income people to bear an individualized risk. Mm-hmm. But that that's rational, Charlie. <laughs> I kind of feel, but it goes against, like, I don't know, some of like the supposedly core values, you know, that define American culture. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about that. If it, those if it goes against core values that define American culture, right? You know, the the United States was one of the first countries to create a very generous old age insurance program in Social Security. And we've had many instances where we've created very uh, generous state run programs. And if you look at the polling, you know, it's a majority of voters support student debt cancellation. Close to a majority of voters, it depends on the poll and it depends on where you are in the political debate. Close to a majority of folks support student free college. And 
so I think the the politics are complicated. If you can pass something that expands higher education, financial support for low income students, which I would see as you know in a way, and it sounds like you folks have seen this yourselves, in a way that's a form of automatic recessionary social insurance, mm-hmm. where if jobs go away, people go to school. Mm-hmm. That's what happened in 2008 to 2011 with Pell Grants. You had a mm-hmm. huge surge in college going by low-income students where they enrolled in school using Pell Grants and federal student loans, essentially because there was no well-compensated alternative. But mm-hmm. I, I'm, you know, I don't think that the existing studies, and I can't cite something for you right now, but my impression is that you actually, you know, workers, young people, middle-aged people are going to go take good jobs that are well compensated because they value the dignity of work and wages on average are going to be higher if you're a full-time worker than if you're a student. Mm -hmm. Um, You'd have to provide really, really generous financial aid, not just enough to like cover your full cost of living to actually lure people out of the labor market and into college. Oh, I'm not saying that you would have people leaving good jobs. Um, I'm saying that you might very well have people uh, leaving minimum wage jobs or basically diverted, like instead of going on disability, I'll go to school. And that's a much more expensive way for society to provide an income because on top of providing the income, they're providing a, you know, an education but not really the education, but they're providing the educational expense, right? So let's say that we give someone $18,000 a year in stipend and we pay them to go to UCLA or Queens College or UC Merced, you know, then that's providing, and let's say that that costs another 18,000. So it's costing us twice as much to basically provide a social insurance welfare program. Yeah, well, we basically do that right now. Yeah, that's true. We do that at UCLA. Um, I mean, that Mm -hmm. pretty much is the financial aid system at UCLA. Uh, the problem is, is that a lot of students end up falling through the cracks, and it's the most vulnerable mm. students who fall through the cracks of the financial aid system. And the other thing I would say, Charlie, is like, I want to, I, I would push back a little bit in, in that I think it's one thing to have the majority of Americans supporting free college, right? And, you know, sort of like getting rid of, you know, of college debt now, just saying, okay, let's have a do-over. I think it's because like a huge portion of the American public is affected by these two things. You're either a parent or you're going to be a student yourself or you're a grandparent, right? Or you have siblings, you know what I mean? So there's something in it for you. But then when you turn it into, yeah, I think that, you know, society should take on the risk particularly for low income individuals, I kind of feel like that's when people like start to bristle. And I think that's when it's harder to get the American public to commit to saying yes to these kinds of public policies. And, and who knows, maybe we're entering into a sort of new era where maybe the majority of Americans would actually be more open to this, but I don't know that the majority of American politicians would actually want to move on that. You've been listening to the Annex Sociology Podcast. Special thank you to Charlie Eaton from the University of California, Merced. His recent article in Socius is Organizational Ecology of College Affordability, Research Activity, State Grant Aid Policies, and Student Debt at U.S. Public Universities. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Facebook, 
the Annex Sociology Podcast and on Twitter at Sociannex. Our producer is Lisette Moreno. Music by Lena Orsa. On behalf of Leslie Hinkson and Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.